in the early 1600s, Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra wrote a, a fictional story that met with great success in the Hispanic world. The Spanish-speaking world at the time has continued to be popular even today. So who knows what I'm talking about? Jennifer Garden, where are you? Who, what am I talking about? Uh, go ahead, Darren. What am I talking about? What's the story? Don Quixote, right? How many of you kids heard of Don Quixote? My son was explaining over here how quixotic from Quixote means like being crazy. And uh, Don Quixote was indeed crazy. As the story unfolds, we meet Alfonso Quijano, a country gentleman in his 50s from La Mancha, who lived with his niece and housekeeper. And uh, in the course of time, he became obsessed with reading books about chivalry. You know, knights and dragons and damsels in distress. And he read so much about these that it, it came to consume his mind and he had little time for eating or sleeping. And so he became quixotic, right, SR? He became crazy as he lacked sleep and he lacked food. And eventually, he became a knight. He found an old suit of armor and a, a makeshift helmet, renamed himself Don Quixote de la Mancha. And he declared his courtly love for his imaginary maiden named Dulcinea del Toboso. He went out to find his adventure. And his first day out, he went to an inn. And when he came to the inn, Don Quixote took the innkeeper there to be the, the lord of the castle. Right, The inn became the castle. And he convinced him to, to don him a real knight. And uh, at some point, the innkeeper actually dubbed him a knight. <clears throat> I think probably to satisfy this man's curiosity. Upon returning home, his family was very concerned about him. And uh, they secretly burned many of his books, sealed up his library, pretending that a magician had come and carried away all his books, right? If he's so into this stuff, then you know they pretend this magician took them all away. And, and so Don Quixote was angry at that. And, and wanting to go on more adventures, he convinced his dull-witted neighbor Sancho Panza to be a squire. And Sancho basically kind of came along and... As they were, this knight and squire together, they snuck away in the early dawn for their adventures. And in chapter 8, one of his most famous adventures comes, Cervantes writes, and here I read, At this point they came in sight of 30 to 40 windmills that were on the plain. And as soon as Don Quixote saw them, he said to his squire, Fortune is arranging matters for us better than we could have shaped our desires ourselves. For look there, friend Sancho Panza where thirty or more monstrous giants present themselves, all of whom I mean to engage in battle and slay, and whose spoils we shall begin to make our fortunes. For this is righteous warfare, and it is God's good service to sweep so evil a breed from off the face of the earth. Sancho Panza says, What giants? <laughs> Those thou seest there, answered his master with long arms. And some have nearly two leagues long. Look, your worship, said Sancho, what we see there are not giants, but windmills. And as for their arms, they are the sails that are turned by the wind and make the millstones go. It's easy to see, replied Don Quixote, that thou art not used to this business of adventures. Thou, those are giants. If thou art afraid, away with thee, out of this, and betake thyself to prayer while I engage them in fierce an unequal combat. So saying, he gave the spur to his horse 
Heedless of the cries of his squire, Sancho sent after him, warning him that those most certainly were windmills and not giants he was going to attack. He, however, was so positive that they were giants that he neither heard the cries of Sancho nor perceived, near as he was, what they were, but made at them shouting, Fly not, cowards and vile beings, for a single knight attacks you. In this picture on the children's note, I drew a picture. There's a picture there of Don Quixote attacking the windmills. Cervantes continues, A slight breeze at this moment sprang up, and the great sails began to move, seeing which Don Quixote exclaimed, Though ye flourish more arms than the giant Briarius, ye have to reckon with me. So saying, committing himself with all his heart to his lady Dulcinea, imploring her to support him in such apparel, with lance in rest and covered by his buckler, he charged at fullest gallop and fell upon the first mill that stood in front of him. But as he drove his lance point into the sail, the wind whirled it around with such a force that it shivered the lance to pieces, sweeping it with horse and rider who went rolling over the plain in a sorry condition. Sancho hastened his assistance as fast as his donkey could go. And when he came up, he found him unable to move with such a shock had his horse fallen with him. God bless me, said Sancho. Did I not tell your worship to mind what you were about? For they are only windmills. And no one could have made any mistake about it but one who had something of the same kind in his head. Hush, friend Sancho, replied Don Quixote. The fortunes of war, more than any, are liable to frequent fluctuations. And moreover, I think that it is the truth that the same sage Friston, who carried off my study and books, has turned these giants into windmills in order to rob me of the glory of vanquishing them. And such is the enmity he bears me. But in the end, his wicked arts will avail but little against my good sword. It's a story of a chaotic man, a crazy man, who when confronted even with reality, denied it. He saw these windmills first as a giant. And then when he came to see them as giants, he didn't see these windmills as windmills. He said, oh, but he's changed them into windmills to deceive us. And even when Sancho Panza, his voice of reality, confronted him, he failed to believe. So set was his mind upon his ways rather than the ways of reality. Now, of course, this is a a great illustration of our sermon series this summer. I've entitled, Not Our Ways. See, the ways of Don Quixote were not the ways of reality. He had something fixed in his mind, but it wasn't right. And rather than trusting what was right, he trusted his own logic and realized, thought that these windmills were giants. Well, for the past six weeks, we've taken up various topics in Scripture which I've sought to demonstrate in which ways or which we might think in our natural state that that God does something which is is different than what we think is right. What we think is right is this. But God's ways are different than our ways and we need to trust our friend Sancho Panza. We need to trust the testimony of the Bible. We need to trust... God, that God's ways are right and not our ways. And we've done this for six weeks, taking six different examples of ways in which God does things that we probably wouldn't have done those. And today we come to the seventh way in which God's ways are not our ways. And I've taken each of these examples from a sermon um, written by a man named Edward Payson in the 1800s. The sermon impacted me enough. I wanted to just um, take these things, these eight points that he did, and expand upon them. And this morning, we look at how God created a world in which we're saved by grace and not by works. 
My message this morning is entitled, Not Our Ways, Saved by Grace. And as I've done each week, I want to read what Edward Payson said about this, and then I want to expand upon it. Edward Payson said this, God's thoughts respecting the way in which men become partakers of the salvation of the gospel differ widely from ours. We all naturally suppose that men are to be saved by their good works, by obeying the law, by subduing their sins, by alms and prayers. But the gospel teaches us that man are to be saved not by working, but by believing. That we are saved by grace through faith. And that to him that worketh not, but believeth on him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted to him for righteousness. This truth men neither love nor understand. And even after they are awakened and convinced of sin, it is one of the most difficult things imaginable to conceive them that their pretended good works are no better than sins. And that if they ever obtain salvation, it must be by simply believing in the Son of God. In scarcely anything do God's thoughts and ways differ so widely from ours as in this great doctrine of salvation through grace of justification by faith in the righteousness of Christ. And basically what Edward Payson is saying, it says, you ask the natural man and most people will say, how do you get to heaven? Well, you, you be a good person. You've heard people say that before? Be a good person and you work your way there. And uh, by being right and by being good, you can get there. But God's ways are different. It's not by that. It's only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we can get there. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. For our text this morning, we're going to look at the verse 10 verses that really focus the attention upon the grace of God in our salvation. Let me read them. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, <clears throat> because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. This is a great passage of Scripture that puts forth the depth of our sin on the one hand, and then puts forth the greatness of God's grace on the other. The depth of our sin and the greatness of our grace, of God's grace. And the two, really, it's intentional. On the one hand, we see our state as sinners painted as dark as can be. When Paul describes the state of our souls for what it really is, there's no hope. We're described as utterly helpless. And yet, on the other hand, when he describes God's grace, it abounds in all its glory. God, in, in no obligation in any way, merely because of His love and grace and mercy and kindness, extends it to us in Christ Jesus. 
as His mercy and grace that is great and God is to be worshipped and adored because of that grace. You know, when jewelers put forth their diamonds and their jewels and their rubies to show before other people, they always have a, a black background upon them. They, 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 they paint it a black backdrop and then they put their jewels in front and then they shine bright, bright lights on the jewels so your attention isn't upon the black backdrop but is upon the jewels and the diamonds. And when we see our sin as so black and so dark, when we see the, the diamond of God's grace come through, it just shines and we ought to rejoice in those things. And that's what our text does for us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're the black background. There's nothing good in us whatsoever to be looked at and adored, but God's jewel, God's grace is the jewel. It shines forth in all of its brilliancy. And so my aim this morning as I, as I preach to you is this, is that you would so see God's grace sparkle and shine and glitter that you can't help but to rejoice. I want you to go forth from this place singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and dark and gone, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I want to sing of His amazing grace. I want for you to go away from this place singing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain for me who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? Your grace is brilliant, God, upon the black backdrop of my, my vileness. I want you to leave this place singing, Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. I want you to leave this morning singing sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold points to the refuge, the mighty cross. I want you to leave this morning singing grace unmeasured, vast and free that, that knew me from eternity, that called me out before my birth to bring you glory on this earth. Grace, amazing, pure and deep, that saw me in my misery, that took my curse and owned my blame so I could bear your righteous name. I want you to go forth from this place singing the marvels of God's grace. In fact, I'm going to finish my sermon a little bit earlier than normal so we can respond in some hymns of praise to God for His grace. You can be thinking about that and anticipating this. I arranged the order of service this week. I thought about putting the, the songs of grace first to lead us. But I said, you know what? Let's respond to the Word. Let's have these songs of God's grace at the end. So I trust in the end you'll sing with a full heart to reflect upon the grace of God in Christ that's come to you, if you indeed are a believer in Christ. And I think this aim is right along the lines of what Paul wants. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And. And is a connecting word. It's a conjunction junction, right? And what's your function? You guys know, right? Teenage girls over here. What's your function? Hooking up phrases and clauses and... I don't know how it goes, but you hook them up together. And so what that means is it from the beginning of Ephesians 2 is it links to Ephesians 1. And there's a link. And Paul in Ephesians 1, verse 15 and following is where he really starts. He's, 
He's praying to these people who he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints. He was praying for them is what verse 16 says. And here's the aim. Here's the end of Paul's prayer. He's saying, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 17, the Father of all glory may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In other words, I want you to know more fully this God who has saved you. You believe in Him and you love the saints and I see that and I want you more fully to know. Because Paul was fully aware that we see in a mirror dimly now the heavenly realities. God was, Paul was fully aware that we see now the, the things of heaven only in part. And he was praying here in chapter 1, verse 17 that you would know. The content of the prayer continues in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that you will know, I, I, I want your heart, the eyes of your, I want your heart to see and to feel and to know the hope of His calling. I want you to know how great is heaven and where you are called to. I want you to know, as he says, what are the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want you to know how rich you will be someday, far beyond any possible imagination of the riches you have in Christ. I want you to know the strength which God has. God's power is far more powerful than you ever thought anything possible to be. And he's talking about the power of God here from verse 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. And now he's going to talk about the power of God in raising sinners from the dead. And in talking about that, he's going to talk about God's amazing grace in doing so. Chapter 2 is a continuation of chapter 1. In chapter 1, Paul says, I want you to see and understand. And I believe if you see and understand, you're going to sing God's grace at the end of my message today with greater firm and greater vigor than ever before. My outline this morning has two points corresponding to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Our sin and God's grace. The dark and then the bright. So let's look at the dark first. It says here in verse 1, And you are dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and sins. Dead in your trespasses and sins. These words describe the spiritual anatomy of all who are not Christians. Describes the anatomy of of those who are apart from Christ. It describes also the anatomy of what all of us who are in Christ used to be. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. They, they give us a sense of hopelessness. They give us a sense of helplessness. Paul says our spiritual anatomy is one of death. We are dead in our sins. Now, in, in saying that we're dead, he's not saying that we are physically dead. In verse 2, we see these same people walking walking according to the course of this world. In verse 3, he says that we lived among these things. So the dead in verse 1 are described as walking in verse 2 and living in verse 3. So we see these dead people having life in them. They're living and breathing and walking, but, but they're dead. They're walking corpses. So I thought about an illustration of this. I thought about um, some animistic cultures and those who practice voodoo. Some of those who do believe that a human corpse can be revived by a sorcerer. And when the, the corpse comes alive, it, these people believe it lacks a soul, which means it lacks true life, though it has life. And they call these, you know what they call them? What's the name for this word? A zombie is who they are. They're, they're zombies. And if you ever see pictures of what people draw zombies to be like, they're always like a glaze in their eye, like they don't have any of those 
around things, pupils, they're not corneas, whatever. The, 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 our eye, their eyes are just white, like looking into space, glazed over look. And they represent that there's no life within them. It's because people believe that zombies don't have a will of its own. It's completely controlled by the one who brought it to life. It's a perfect illustration of non-Christians. Non-Christians are zombies. Oh, they're, they're walking around. Oh, they're breathing. But there's a glazed look. There's no true life within them. They are dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. Animated dead people. And what, what further makes this, as the sorcerer has control over the zombie, so also does sin have control over these dead people. And they control them and they're consumed by their sin. And that's what it means. To be dead in your sin means that your sin is so controlling you and so domineering over your life that all you're doing is pursuing sin. Willingly living in your own pleasure. Willingly transgressing the the law of God. Willingly missing God's righteousness. That's what it means. It means we're dead. Unresponsive to things in the spiritual realm. Before Christ, we're dead to the things of the Spirit. We may hear about them, but we're not interested. Someone may talk to us about the Gospel, but it won't make sense to us for a natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the spiritual God. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they're foolish to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. A natural man can't understand the things of the Spirit of God. He just can't. Have you ever seen someone who's like so obsessed with something <clears throat> that you try talking to him and it doesn't doesn't uh, register? Maybe wise, maybe you see this when your husband is reading the newspaper and maybe drinking his coffee, getting ready for work, and you're talking to him about maybe kids or something, and he's talking and there's like nothing registering. Maybe some of you know what that's talking about. Maybe parents, you've seen children <clears throat> watching the television, watching some movie, and you try to say. Uh, kids, can you clean up the table? Sometimes, I'm telling you, you could probably time it there. It's like minutes go by without them blinking if they watch this thing. And you can talk to them and talk to them and talk to them. It doesn't register. That's what dead people are like. That's what dead people in their sin are like. You can talk to them and talk to them and talk to them, but it doesn't register. Before anyone becomes a Christian, they're totally engrossed in their own sins. All they want is the movie. All they want is the newspaper. All they want is the coffee. And other things just doesn't register in their hearts and minds. They're controlled like a zombie, insensitive to righteousness. That's what this means here in chapter 2, verse 1. And it says here in verse 2 about different areas in which they walked. One is they walked according to the course of this world. The world's lures and lusts capture their attention. I mean, you can see that the world doesn't want God. It's illustrated very well in the advertisement industry. Next time you see a commercial on television, next time you see you know, something in print, how is it the world uses to advertise people to purchase their goods? The world uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Could you imagine advertisement at using the fruit of the Spirit to try to convince you to buy their product? Peace and patience and kindness and self-control. Here's some self-control, right? Here's a person of self-control. Therefore, buy our items. Like, no, if I had self-control, I wouldn't buy your items. You're trying to create in me an urge that I just can't control myself. I have to buy that because I, I want the riches and the lust that come with it. 
That's the world. And people who are dead in their sins follow the way of the world. People who are dead in their sins also are devil-controlled, right? According to the prince of the power of the air. It's talking about Satan. Satan works in the sons of disobedience to accomplish his work in the world. He tempts, he seduces, he deceives, he lies, he attacks. He puts his satanic spell on people. 2 Corinthians 4 says that Satan blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. They might not see the glories of Christ. God, there's Satan, working his work so as to blind people from the spiritual realities. That's what sin is. And it's not just affecting those people out there. No, it's affected everybody. And that's the point of verse 3 here. Among them, we too all formerly lived. Paul's saying that we Jews also live. It's not just the Gentiles who live this way. We Jews who had the law, who had the prophets, who knew the commands of God, we also lived this way in the lust of the flesh. We indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're just like the Gentiles because sin has affected us all. I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how religious your upbringing is. I don't care how nice on the outside you look. Sin has infected all of us deeply. And before we're Christians, this is where we are. Even if we look real good on the outside. You remember the Pharisees? They looked better on the outside than all of you do. Their religious commitment was far more, I think, than any of us committed to their, their prayers and their righteousness and external. And Jesus said, you whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look nice and beautiful, but on the inside, you are dead men's bones. I think Paul got his theology from Jesus. Looking clean on the outside, but inside you're dead. There's rottenness. There's stench there. Nothing is helping. And that's what Paul is saying. Gentiles walked in the flesh. Jews who are religious walked in the flesh. As a result, they were by nature children of wrath, as it says at the end of verse 3. It means every person's ever lived is by nature a child of wrath. It's part of our constitution. It's part of the way we are. Certainly we do sinful things, but, but our wickedness descends deeper than that. It, it descends into our very being. It's like the color of our skin. It's, it's what we are. It's what God has given to us. It's not our behavior. We're by nature children of wrath. The way God has made us the way Adam has sinned then and brought that to us by imputation, which was one of the ways that God's ways and not our ways. Now there are God's ways. Sin is so bad we're completely helpless and hopeless. Our sin is so bad we can't understand spiritual things unless God works in us. Now this is not the ways of the world. Okay, This flat out is not the ways of the world. If you talk to the people in the world, basically their outlook on mankind is oftentimes, say, I think that man's basically good. I think that they're pretty good and and they look around and see good things that people do and say that are good. And I say people do do good things. And they do, on the human level, help and serve other people's oftentimes. But on the spiritual level, where you're talking about what true righteousness is with God, it's like totally cut off there. Their, their righteous deeds, however they look, are only manward and self-focused so as to preserve something in themselves. But when God word, when you th- take God into account... There's like no goodness there. That's what the Bible speaks. And, and people in the world will deny that. It, it is interesting that the people in the world will take the darkness of, of man's sin and try to bring it up. Oh, he's not as bad as he should be. 
And then actually in the greatness of God's grace, they, they bring God's grace down because, see, man can do some things to work his way to God. I think the Bible does exactly the opposite. The Bible suppresses our goodness, and when you suppress the goodness, the gap of salvation is much huger, much bigger, and the extent of God's grace becomes more glorious. And that's what Paul points out here in chapter 2, verse 4. God's grace, which is great and grand and glorious. And first, we need to, to paint our picture dark. And now we see the jewel of God's grace shine in all its luster, sparkling. Verse 4, but God. We can't get beyond those words. Two of the most blessed words in all the Bible. Words of contrast, words of hope. One through three are dark. And verses 4 through 10 are light. And how lavish is His grace. Look at how His grace is lavish here. Verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. His verses describe the mercy and love of God. He says He is rich in mercy. It means He has a lot of mercy. Bill Gates has a lot of money. We call Him rich. But God has a lot of mercy. So we call Him rich in mercy mercy. And you know what? It takes a lot of mercy to save sinful, wrath-deserving people. It takes a lot of mercy to save any of us. I don't care how righteous you think yourself to be. If you knew the holiness of God, you'd realize how much mercy it takes to save us. Later in this verse, Paul is described as having great love means that God has a whole lot of love. The ocean has a lot of water, but God has a lot of love. And to rescue us from our sinful, hell-deserving state, it took a lot of love. It took a lot of love. But God extended that. We've seen already in verses 1 through 3 how helpless it was for us. And now in verse 5, we see exactly how bad it was. Paul brings it up again. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God's rich in mercy, He's rich in love, and even when we're dead, suppressing us way down is when God saved us. We're not spiritually alive. We're spiritually dead. Unresponsive to the things of God. A dead man can be told to arise. He won't rise up. A dead man can be poked and prodded, slapped in the face. He's not going to respond. A dead man doesn't get better on his own. If anything, a dead man gets worse on his own. So his body begins to decay and he begins to stink. And this is where we were before Christ saved us. We are dead, unresponsive, no hope, no spiritual desire. But God changed all that. See, if our problem is that we're dead, what do we need? We need life. And we need God to make us alive. In fact, that's exactly what God did. And when we were dead, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, here it is, made us alive together with Christ. And if you don't feel and understand how deep your deadness was, you won't feel how great God's work of making you alive was. And suppose I, I came to one of you today and I I went up and I grabbed my daughter and I, I grabbed her violently by the arms and I, I took her and I dragged her across here and I, I dumped her right here on the stage. What would you think? She'd be like, what are you doing that for? She must have disobeyed. You gave me a, a dirty look, Hannah. That's why I'm going to do that. 
You'd be like, what? Okay. But now picture that uh, the floor here is water. And my daughter's drowning. And I'm coming and I'm swimming in the water and I'm taking her and I'm grabbing her and I'm bringing her across the water and I throw her on the dock. Now what's your response? You just saved that little girl. You just helped her. You rescued her. You took her from death to life. And you did something violent even to take her there. And if I did that to any of you, you might even stoop down and kiss my feet because I'm your Savior. See, that's what God has done for us. We weren't just kind of swimming on the sea and drowning, though. It, it, it took a, we weren't swimming on the sea, drowning. God says, here you go. Grab on, and I'll pull you in. You know what? You were dead in the bottom of the sea. And God stepped aside off the dock. He put on a swimsuit, right? He became flesh. He swam in there. He went down to the bottom of the sea where you were, grabbed you in his arms, took you up, brought you up upon his dock, gave you spiritual CPR, and gave you life. And now you really live, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's what God has done for us. He's taken us when we're dead on the bottom of the sea, brought us up, and made us alive. In fact, that's the point of verse 5, the parenthetical comment there. It's by grace you've been saved. It's entirely God's doing. It's His work. That's what grace is. Grace is giving spiritual life to spiritually dead people. God's grace is acting before we even do the seeking. God's grace is working even before we see the need. God's grace is not merely helping, but doing it all. In of ourselves, we had no power to make ourselves alive. God did all the work. We didn't even initiate the work. You know, sick men can cry out and say, Doctor, help me. Give me some medicine to help me with my sickness. But a dead man can't say, Doctor, I'm dead. Make me alive. That's what God did. God initiated, intervened, made us alive. But He did more than merely making us alive. As it says here in verse 6, He raised us up with Him. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, these are strange words to our ears. We know of how Christ Jesus, Psalm 110, sits at the right hand of God. The Bible often speaks in the New Testament. I've got about six different references where it talks about Christ Jesus. Rose from the dead. Now He sends. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. We know that. And we believe that because Jesus isn't here among us. And He, he sits up there. But, but this says that we've been raised up with Jesus and seated with Him in the heavenly places It's difficult because it seems like we're right here, right now, right? And we are. And I don't know these words. I don't know how to to interpret these words. I don't know how to understand these words. That's why Paul's prayer needs to come true in me. I need to fully understand the, the, the true revelation of what God is. Chapter 1, verse 17. But, but what he's saying is this. There's a sense where we are so alive in our salvation that we are seated at the right hand of God the Father, right with Jesus Christ. That's what we are. God has so made us alive. It's all by God's grace He's brought up there, brought us there. And now we come to verse 7. My favorite verse in this entire section. In fact, I would even say that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 is probably my favorite verse in all of the Bible. I really think it is. 
Because here, it speaks about the purposes of God in our salvation and begins to put everything in perspective. And if you understand this verse, this verse will make you a worshiper. This verse will give you joy and gladness. God's purpose of salvation is far beyond us. And here's His purpose in salvation. He wants forever His creation to behold His amazing grace. He saves us so that His whole creation forever can see us and then think about His amazing grace. Forever. Have you ever noticed when a little girl does some artwork, she's anxious to show mommy and daddy what she's done? Have you ever noticed a little boy who learns to ride a bicycle, anxious to show his friends what he can do? Did you ever notice uh, an adult when he's working on a project, particularly us men, want to show everybody what we're working on? You've been to my house recently. You've been downstairs to see my project, right? See my project. We're, we're working on uh, kind of redoing our basement and putting up drywall and everything. And there's something about when we do a work, we want others to share in it. And that's exactly what God has done. God has done a work and He wants everybody to share in it. And what He wants everyone to share in is God's grace. That's the ultimate reason why anybody is saved. So God might show the world how gracious He is. That's the flow of these passages. First three verses talk about how sinful we are. Right? So I put it before. Sinful we are. We're really sinful. And then, how gracious God is to stoop from way up there to way down there to make us alive. And then forever, He wants to take these people who are dead, made them alive. He says here, I want them to be trophies of My grace. I want you to look at them forever and just say, Wow! Is God gracious to save Him? Is God gracious to save her? You know, I remember being in college. Sometimes they have something called open mic where, you know, kind of people get together and, you know, just a microphone and just say, do whatever. Sing, dance, speak, say some jokes, do whatever. It's an open mic. You know what? There's an open mic in heaven that will forever be used and it will be used by all of us. We'll stand and say there will probably be a big line of people waiting to give testimony of how gracious God has been in their life. One man might stand up and say, I was born in a single family household at a difficult time when I was a youngster. Money was tight. Mom was gone. She wasn't a Christian. Often come home drunk. Didn't get treated very well. As a result, listen, I was, I was involved in the wrong crowd. I was involved in a gang. Three years in prison I was sent to for grand theft auto. But you know what? It's there that God broke me. It's there that God gave me new life. He caused me to be born again. And He gave me several years to study His Word. And I came to see the marvels of grace that He would forgive one like me. And my life is never the same. I went out and uh, God used me then to save thousands. And we can just look at that and say, marvel not at this, this sinful man who enjoyed years in jail, but this sinful man who got saved by grace. Or another might give testimony. Right? I grew up in a religious home. But my home was filled with hypocrisy. My parents looked really good on the outside at church, but when they got home, it was a totally different matter. And I came to be very cynical of religion. I didn't believe it at all. Sure, my dad and my mom were really active in the church, but it was all externals. I could see that. And I became just like them, very condemning of others. It didn't live up to my standard. But in my 40s, God gave me a car accident. 
And I nearly died. And I was in the hospital for six months repairing my 14 broken bones that I had in my body. I need a liver transplant. I needed much work to be done. But God worked His grace in my heart at that time. He broke me. He caused me to be born again. He showed me my sin and my need for a Savior. He gave me faith to believe. I confessed my externalism, my hypocrisy to my, my wife and my children and my church. Everyone saw a change in me. Isn't God's grace wonderful to work in me? And we go on and on and on. In fact, I could have every single one of you who have trusted Christ be able to share. Your testimony that you've experienced here on earth, you're going to be able to share in heaven forever. And why? So as to proclaim and magnify His grace. That's what chapter 2, verse 7 says. So that the purpose of God being gracious in salvation is that in the ages to come, that's heaven, that is future, that is eternity, He might show, this is God might show, the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saves people to put them on display so that forever they will display His grace. He displays Himself in His glory and His magnificent wonder and splendor of His majesty, but He will show His grace in us who have experienced it. And at that open microphone, there's always going to be a willing audience. I think it's going to be packed because the angels long to look into this salvation. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. Angels rejoice when sinners repent, Luke 15. They love to hear redemption stories because they haven't experienced it themselves. Because God gives help to the children of men and not to angels, which is another way in which God's ways are not our ways. All these testimonies. Who gives the praise? Who gets the praise in all these testimonies? God does. Why does He receive the praise? Because of His grace. How long will these prayers go on? Forever. In the ages to come. Forever. He's going to show forth His riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Question. Ultimately, why have you been saved from your sins? Why have you been saved? Ultimately, in the greatest sense. Answer so that forever I can show forth the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward me in Christ Jesus. That's why you're saved. Ultimately, is to show forth His grace. Now there's all, all, all sorts of things why God saves us. But ultimately, this is the final purpose, to magnify His grace. None of us will deserve to enjoy the pleasures of heaven. It's only God's grace that allows us to do so. But our presence there will cause great praise to go to God for His glorious grace to us. And that's why Ephesians 2, verse 7 is my favorite verse in all the Bible. Because it magnifies the grace of God. And verses 8 through 10 continue on the theme. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You know, your salvation can be attributed to one thing, the grace of God. It's the one thing it can be attributed to. It's entirely His work that took you from a dead state to a, a life. If some might say, well, I believed. Didn't I mean, that's my part, right? I believed. Look closely what verse 8 says. And, and you did believe. I want to affirm that. You did believe. 
But verse 8 says, it's by grace you've been saved. Yes, you believed it's through faith, but it says here, that is not of yourselves. The question is, what does that refer to? Does it refer to the faith that was not yourselves? Does it refer to the grace that's not yourselves? Most theologians say it refers to the whole salvation context. Your whole salvation is not of yourselves. Your whole salvation is, as it says here, it's a gift of God. And it's true you believed in Jesus, who alone can say. But if you step back for a moment and ask the question, okay, now, why is it that I believed? It's because God gave you the faith to believe. So it says, it's a gift of God. God has given it to you with bows and ribbons, covered all nice with wrapping paper. And He gives you this gift called faith. You know, many scriptures even talk about repentance, God granting repentance. I have about four different passages we could go through here, but it talks about how God grants repentance to people. 2 Timothy 2.25, when confronting with someone who's an unbeliever, you're patient with them and you talk to them if perhaps God might grant to them repentance. God grants repentance. He grants faith. Why does He do it? Verse 9. It's not as a result of works. You say, well, faith isn't a work. Well, faith is something in you that you might say, well, it's of me, but it's not. You can't say anything of me. God saves us not as a result of works so that no one can boast. God saves us such a way that we can't say, look at my work. I believed. I repented. You can't say that. God has done His marvelous work in saving us in such a way that we can't point to ourselves of anything we've done. That's the grounds of God saving us. We're saved by His grace. We're saved when we didn't deserve it. We're saved when God initiated His work. Yes, we believe, but, but we should boast that God opened our hearts to believe. That God is the one who did that work. And the theme continues in verse 10. Even our good works that we do have been prepared for by God. We're His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When God makes us alive from our sinful state, we're a new creature, creating Christ Jesus. As we're new, we're created for good works, which God prepared, has already prepared the way for them. And we simply walk in them. In the ages to come, you're not going to say, look at all the wonderful things that I did. You're going to say, look at all the wonderful things that God prepared for me to do and that I walked in them faithfully. In ages to come, you're going to say, it was all grace. It was all God. Let's boast in Him. I love the way that Paul Wright puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. We're going to close here real quick. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, Paul says this, which ought to be all of our perspective. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul says, the only reason I am who I am is by the grace of God. He said, yes, I labored. I labored even more than all of the apostles. You name them. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Thaddeus, Bartholomew. I labored more than all of them. But what did he say? At the end of the day, it really wasn't me. It's the grace of God working in me. And if Paul can say that about his labors and what he's doing, certainly you ought to be able to say that about the faith that he's given you. Yes, I believed. 
and I worked hard on my but but it wasn't me, it was the grace of God working in me that I believed. So I want this morning to sing of his grace. I hope you're prepared and ready to sing with enthusiasm and joy. So let's pray. Lord, I would pray as we think sing of your amazing grace, the grace that's unmeasured, vast and free, that called us from eternity. Lord, that you would stir our hearts to to sing with great passion and love and joy for you. In Jesus' name, amen.